0: Today's reading, Psalms 119, 65 through 72. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My wife is joining me this morning. We were at this church some years ago, not at this particular facility, when it was called Imago Day. But my connection to the church right now is through Ed Komoshefsky, my very good friend for a very long time. I understand that Ed preached last month, and he must not have done too terribly because you still let him join you this morning. So glad to hear that. I'm going to be speaking on is what we have now, what they wrote then. I'm going to start with some views about the Bible that are current in our, our culture today that most people have. I start by quoting from that great scholar Dan Brown in his book The Da Vinci Code where he says the Bible you're supposed to laugh at that. He's not a great scholar. Come on now. Let's, you've got to work with me here a little bit. Okay. The Bible has evolved through countless translations, additions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. Well, here's something that's a little bit more serious than the Da Vinci Code. Newsweek, which used to be pretty accurate in reporting the news. What came out on December uh, 23rd, eight years ago, or seven and a half years ago, was an article called, The Bible, So Misunderstood It's a Sin, by Kurt Eichenwald, who's a uh, graduate of uh, St. Mark's School in Dallas. Notice the date, December 23rd. When skeptics write or speak about Christianity, They get on the news, they get on TV, on radio, far more often during Christmas and Easter, the very times in which Christians are solidified in their worship of the Lord about His birth and His death and resurrection. Now here's what uh, Eichenwald had to say in this uh, purportedly accurate news article. He has a section called Plain Telephone with the Word of God, and in it, He says, No television preacher has ever read the Bible, neither has any evangelical politician, neither has the Pope, neither have I. So far, he's probably telling the truth, and neither have you. At best, we've all read a bad translation, a translation of translations of translations, of hand copied copies of copies of copies of copies, and on and on hundreds of times. Now, understand this is the attitude that permeates our culture today perhaps a little bit more seriously is a book by CJ Werleman he wrote a book called Jesus lied he was only human and here he has Jesus hooked up to a lie detector his first book he likes to have books with provocative titles his book first book was God hates you hate him back rather provocative title he's an atheist And so that first book has got a rather ironic title. God hates you, but if there is no God, then maybe he should have called it nothing hates you, hate nothing back. Not sure. But in this book, here's what he has to say. We do not have any of the original manuscripts of the Bible. The originals are lost. We don't know when, and we don't know by whom. What we have are copies of copies. In some instances, the copies we have are 20th generation copies. In Britain, the most popular, um, oh, sorry, here we go. The most popular Muslim apologist is M.M. Al Azami. And he has written the Orthodox Church being the sect which eventually established supremacy over all the others stood in fervent opposition to various ideas, also known as heresies, which were in circulation. These included adoptionism, the notion that Jesus was not God but a man. Docetism, the opposite view, that he was God and not man. And separationism, that divine and the human elements of Jesus Christ were two separate beings. In each case, this sect, the one that would rise to become the Orthodox Church, deliberately corrupted the scriptures so as to reflect its own theological visions of Christ while demolishing that of all rival sects one pillar of the Christian faith is a sure word from God about Jesus Christ we simply cannot know him apart from the New Testament but there's a problem God did not drop the scriptures from heaven Instead, manuscripts were hand copied, letter by letter, by ancient scribes, scribes who were very human. They made mistakes just like we make mistakes today. And they were often fatigued, careless, had poor hearing, poor eyesight, sloppy penmanship, distractions. Sometimes these ancient scribes even deliberately changed the text, adding a word here or there, sometimes even a whole verse or more and of the thousands of manuscripts of the Greek New Testament that we have today, no two are exactly alike. So how do we know that we have a sure word from God? These people that I've just uh, mentioned represent what's going on in culture, but they get it from a scholar, actually. They get it from several scholars, but the key person who has influenced our culture today about skepticism concerning the Bible And Christianity is a man who went to Moody Bible Institute, graduated from Wheaton College, two very fine evangelical institutes, went to Princeton Seminary to get his master's degree and his Ph.D. under Bruce Metzger, a superb evangelical scholar of New Testament textual research, dealing with the ancient manuscripts, trying to get back to the original wording of the New Testament. Bart Ehrman was an evangelical when he was in college and in his master's program and in the first few years of his doctoral program. Later, he drifted away from the faith. Today, he calls himself either an agnostic or an atheist. Not sure what day it is, uh, whatever he's gonna call himself. But he's written a book, Misquoting Jesus, which very quickly became the number one uh, book on the New York Times bestsellers list. Within three months, it sold 100,000 copies. Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why. It's a popular work based on his scholarly works. And in this book, he says, not only do we not have the originals, we don't have the first copies of the originals. We don't even have copies of the copies of the originals, or copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. Sound familiar? C.J. Werdelman got it from Bart Ehrman. And then later, towards the end of his book, Now he's talking not just about the distance of the copies from the original, now he's talking about the quality of what the manuscripts have to say. He said, the more I studied the manuscript tradition of the New Testament, the more I realized just how radically the text had been altered over the years at the hands of the scribes. It would be wrong to say, as people sometimes do, that the changes in our text have no real bearing. Sorry, I went a little bit too far ahead. have no real bearing on what the texts mean or on the theological conclusions that one draws from them. This is what we're facing in our society today. You who are parents or grandparents especially need to hear what I'm saying because it's your kids and your grandkids who when they leave high school and go off to college, four years later, two-thirds of them will no longer be involved in church at all. That's the statistics we get, is that two-thirds of those who come from Christian homes where they were faithful in church attendance, by the time they get done with college, they've abandoned the church. And in that sense, they've abandoned the Lord. Why? Because the questions are being raised in college about the reliability of scriptures. That's the same question that Satan asked Eve in the garden. Has God really said... This is the question that he started with, and now it's come around full circle in this postmodern era. So how do we deal with these attitudes? Well, let me begin by sharing with you two attitudes that we must avoid as we think about this. And those of you who are in high school and in college, you need to think about these issues just as much. Those of you who are in junior high or even grade school, this is important for you to wrestle with. How do you know you can trust the Bible to tell us the truth about Jesus? The first attitude to avoid avoid is what I've just represented by these various quotes radical skepticism we can't possibly know what the original text said we have no idea what it said but we are pretty sure that it was corrupted so that it now reflects a vision of Jesus Christ that the Orthodox Church that is the one that arose by might and power but not by truth came to reflect its own view of the text that's what Bart Ehrman and all these others are saying there's another attitude that is far more dangerous for believers and that's absolute certainty now you might come to church with your I think you use an ESV here is that right great translation but it's not perfect the translators know it's not perfect they need to keep revising it. As they admitted a few years ago, there will always be revisions of the ESV. I'm on the Committee on Bible Translation, which is 15 scholars responsible for the New International Version, and we are constantly revising. We just met for the last two weeks in Washington, D.C. to discuss changes to the NIV based on better understanding of what the Greek and Hebrew text says And sometimes differences among the manuscripts where now we think this is the word that's original. The Bible constantly changes. Even the King James Bible, the the King James Bible that came out in 1611, it went through three major revisions. The one that is used today is the 1769 revision, which has over 100,000 changes from the 1611. I've talked to some people, one in Ohio, one in Texas, and I heard about another one where they take this completely seriously they say if the King James Bible was good enough for the Apostle Paul it's good enough for me now when I talked to this fellow in Texas about that I mean I, this is serious these are real people who have said this with all sincerity I decided to pitch the discussion on a level that he could understand and I said well how about them Cowboys we just talked about football after that but you too might have absolute certainty about your Bible but it's changing. You cannot say that the Bible you have in your hands in every single respect is the word of God. It is the word of God, yes, but are all the words in it the words of God? We cannot claim that. So between these two radical poles, these distinct different poles, between radical skepticism and absolute certainty, where should we fall? That's what I want to address this morning. There's four questions I want us to answer, and we'll spend the most time on the very first one. How many textual variants are there? I need to tell you what a textual variant is soon enough, we'll get there. What kinds of textual variations are there? What theological beliefs depend on textually suspect passages? That is, is the deity of Christ something that is found in the earliest manuscripts? Is it something that I can claim goes back to the New Testament or not? And the bottom line question is, has the essence of the Christian faith been corrupted by the scribes like all these skeptics are claiming? Well, let me start with a preliminary question. Don't we have the original New Testament anymore? The answer to that is no, we do not. These 27 books must have turned to dust within about a century or so from being copied and recopied and copied over and over again because they were in different churches. So here's a man from Corinth who wants to visit Rome, and he wants to copy Paul's letter to the Romans. So he has his servant copy the text out, who happens to be a good scribe, and every single time some businessman comes to Rome to have it copied, it gets worn out more and more and more. And they wrote on papyrus, which is fragile material. It just doesn't last forever. So we don't have the original manuscripts anymore. Well, what if the copies all agreed with each other? Then we don't, we don't have any problems, right? The problem is no two manuscripts agree completely. So because the originals have disappeared and because all of the copies disagree to some extent, we have to do what's called textual criticism or textual research. That is the science of trying to determine exactly what the original wording of the New Testament is. So one more preliminary question. What is a textual variant? It's any place among the manuscripts in which there is variation in wording, including word order, omission, or addition of words, even words that cannot be translated, and even spelling differences. Now, with that as a background, I'm gonna tell you about how many textual variants we believe we have. This is from a very recent study. What we do know is we have approximately 138,162 words in the Greek New Testament, the best construction of the Greek New Testament that we think goes back to the original. But the variants that span the ages up until the time of the printing press, these manuscripts from the 2nd century all the way through the 16th, how many variants do we have? Well, we have about one and a half million variants. More than ten times the words in the New Testament. I think that's encouraging news. Should we close in prayer now? Some of you who are older will recognize Paul Harvey, and so I'm going to use a line from him. Now I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. C.S. Lewis said that the moment the miracle enters nature's realm. It obeys all her laws. Miraculous wine will intoxicate, miraculous conception will lead to pregnancy. Inspired books will suffer all the ordinary processes of textual corruption. Miraculous bread will be digested. Here's the point I want to stress in this this first uh, note, and that is The reason that we have a lot of textual variants is because we have a lot of manuscripts. I'm gonna illustrate this, and I'll have to be brief. I'm cutting some of these illustrations much shorter so I can stay within the time. 300 years ago, an Oxford scholar who spent 30 years of his life examining every single Greek New Testament manuscript he could find, he ended up discovering 100 of them and cataloging what every single one said in every single place. And then he looked at ancient translations that come from as early as the second century in Latin and Coptic and Syriac and other languages and what the church fathers had to say. Thirty years of his life, and he produced one volume called the Novum Testamentum Graeca, or the Greek New Testament. Two weeks after it was published, he died. That was a great time for him to die because then he could avoid all the skeptics and critics, you know. That's what I want to do, my magnum opus, I want to write and then two weeks later die, so I don't have to deal with all those few people. So I'm timing it. I'm timing it, Patty. You know that. Okay. Well, what he discovered was so many textual variants that uh, every page was filled with at least a third of the textual variants from what he had in the text, and here's, here's a page from the book of Revelation. One third of the page is listing all these variants in much smaller print. Sometimes it was three-fourths of the page. And this was based on just 99 manuscripts. So there were some Protestant groups, very conservative, fundamentalist-type Protestant groups, who said, what you've done, John Mill, is the work of the devil. Friends, I need to tell you, any time we do historical research into the life of Jesus, into the Bible, it is the work of God. And that's because the Incarnation methodologically demands of us that we should examine these things for ourselves. The Bible is the only religious document of any major religion that completely subjects itself to historical verification. And we need to study it. We should never say, well, let's, I just believe it, that settles it, you know, I don't need to think about this more. We do need to think about it more. We need to realize that the closer we get, the better it looks. So, six years after, uh, John Mill wrote his book, Richard Bentley, who was a great scholar at Cambridge, made this comment about it. He said, if there had been but one manuscript of the Greek Testament of the restoration of learning about two centuries ago, that is when the first published Greek New Testament came out in 1516, then we would have had no various readings at all. That Greek New Testament, if it was based on one manuscript, it'd it'd have no variance at all. Would the text be in a better condition then than it is now that we have 30,000 variant readings? It is good, therefore, to have more anchors than one, and another manuscript to join the first would give more authority as well as security. One of the things that we have among the New Testament manuscripts that classical scholars wish they had is an embarrassment of riches. We have so much data that one person, even a team of ten scholars, could not possibly get through it in a lifetime. That's why there's an international community of many, many scholars working on this and millions of man-hours that have gone in to try and determine exactly what the wording of the original text is. Here's what we have when it comes to the New Testament manuscripts. Greek manuscripts, handwritten manuscripts of the New Testament prior to the printing press, we have approximately 5,500 Greek New Testament manuscripts. Now, they're not all complete, but the average size Greek New Testament manuscript is over 400 pages long. We also have the New Testament in many different uh, ancient translations. Latin, we have about 10,000. We're not sure. The total numbers have never been counted. And other ancient versions like Coptic and Latin and Syriac and uh, Old Church Slavonic and Armenian and Arabic, many, many other ancient versions somewhere between five and 10,000 copies of the New Testament in these ancient languages. But if we had a magic wand and could wipe out all of these manuscripts in one fell swoop, we still would not be left without a witness. And that's because of preachers of old known as church fathers. They quoted from the New Testament and they wrote commentaries, they wrote homilies, and these church fathers did not have the gift of brevity. I am following in their train, as my wife could well tell you. Not that I, just the fact that I don't have brevity, that's all I meant. Okay. They quote from the New Testament so much that many years ago it was discovered that we have over one million quotations from the New Testament, well over one million from the, uh, of the New Testament by these church fathers. Now, not all of them are the early church fathers. Some go as late as the 13th century. But at least what we can say is we can reproduce virtually the entire New Testament just on the readings of the church fathers and virtually reproduce it many times over. That's pretty potent. Okay, that's great news, but let's compare it. So the average classical author. The average classical Greek or Latin writer has fewer than 15 copies of his works still in existence. And if you stacked them up, they'd, they'd be about this high. So now let me do a visual comparison that actually is to scale. This took a little bit of work. I hope you appreciate this. So that, that took a lot of work just to drop that podium in there. Looks, it looks kind of like this one, doesn't it? Yeah. So. How tall would the stack of New Testament manuscripts be? I'm comparing oranges with oranges, classical Greek authors and their translations with the New Testament and its translations, but what I'm not adding are the millions, well over a million quotations by the church fathers. I'm not even counting that at all. So what would be the thing that we could compare to the podium for the New Testament? The Empire State Building, I think, would be a good comparison. You stack the New Testament manuscripts up, and it goes all the way to the top of the Empire State Building. But this doesn't look like it's to scale, I said it would be. So here it is to scale. I don't know if you can see this dot, it's one pixel, but that's four feet high. Now that's the Empire State Building, 1,454 feet high. But I've got a lot of room left here. That's because our New Testament manuscripts don't just stack up to one empire state building. They stack up to four and a half. One and a quarter miles high, 6,600 6, feet tall, and counting. My little institute has discovered almost 100 manuscripts in the last 20 years. And that's more than all the rest of the institutes in the world have discovered of the New Testament text. We think there's another 800 to 1,000 manuscripts left to be discovered. Well, due to time constraints, I can only give you one example from a classical author, and he's not an average author by any means. This is Xenophon, the Greek military genius, philosopher, historian, and uh, he wrote the work Hellenica along with some other works. His first substantial manuscripts, by substantial I mean more than just a few verses here and there come 1,800 years after he died. Now, he wrote in the 5th century B.C. But what if we had our first New Testament coming 1,800 years after the New Testament was written? It would be like saying, the first time we have any substantial manuscripts of the New Testament are in about 1903, 1906, right around then when the Wright brothers invented the the airplane. If that were the state of the New Testament, do you think the skeptics would have something to say? Yeah, they would, but they act as if that is the state of the New Testament, and I've just shown you that that is not the state. We have so many manuscripts, and we have so many early manuscripts, so let me just discuss one early manuscript, then I'm just going to show you a chart. It might show up on the quiz, so you may need to remember this, I'm not sure, but here's Uh, A manuscript known as P52. I want to tell you about the discovery of this. This is the size of a credit card. P52 was discovered in 1834 at a library in England at Manchester University by a man named C.H. Roberts. A year later he published it. It was in a shoebox left by his predecessor to keep going through these papyri that had been excavated from Egypt which is the only climate dry enough to really preserve papyri for centuries. He looked at this manuscript and he was surprised that it was written on both sides. What he saw on the first side was this is parts of John chapter 18 verses 31 through 33. He turned it around, John chapter 18 verses 37 and 38. Well, What that told him was that this book was written on a codex. A codex is our modern book form. This is a codex, bound on one side, cut pages, you can flip, you can get to any passage you want. We think of that as a modern invention, but it was actually invented in the second half of the first century AD. Now, if you're under 30 years old, you may have never seen a book that looks like this, because all your books are on computer, and therefore you scroll to read, which is going retro on us. This is a codex. P52 is the oldest codex ever discovered. Now, 90 years earlier, a fellow by the name of F.C. Bauer in Germany had written a major work that seemed to be followed by the rest of Europe for up until 1935 when Roberts published this find. And what Bauer did is he applied Hegelian dialectic to the New Testament, which is thesis on one side, antithesis, and then synthesis in the middle. What Bauer argued was that the Gospel of John has the synthesis between Pauline-type Christianity and Petrine-type Christianity, and it came together much later. So Bauer argued, and was followed by a majority of non-evangelical scholars, that John's gospel must have been written after A.D. 160. Well, he argued, in fact, that it was probably written in about 170. If that's the case, John's gospel tells us nothing that's reliable about the life of Jesus. But when C.H. When, uh, Roberts discovered this manuscript, he said, it looks to me like it's dated somewhere between 100 and 150. He sent photographs to the three leading papyrus scholars in Europe, and each one of them confirmed, yes, between 100 and 150. Now, I don't know about you, I grew up in Newport Beach, California, had a pretty good education, and one of the things I was taught was that, generally speaking, copies of a document are not made before the original document is made. Is that what you've been taught too? Yeah. So what this did was it sent two tons of German literature to the flames. They were wrong. What proved it? An ounce of evidence versus this pound or tons of presumption that F.C. Bauer and his followers had argued about the date of John and the reliability of the New Testament. P52 isn't the only early manuscript we have though. In fact, this is just a real quick chart on this. This won't show up on the quiz, I promise. Maybe a bonus question. We have as many as a dozen manuscripts, all fragmentary from the second century, from between 100 and 200, AD 100 to 200. By the time we get done with the 10th century, we have 967 Greek manuscripts at least. So within 900 years of the New Testament's completion, we almost have 1,000 manuscripts in Greek alone. Well, how does that compare to the average classical author? Within 900 years of the average classical author's writings, zero manuscripts, none. I'd say we have not only a massive amount of data on our side, but we have early data. So if you're going to say that, uh, well, how can we possibly tell what the original New Testament said, then you have to say that a thousand times more often, a thousand times louder, a thousand times greater certainty about virtually everything from the classical world. There's absolutely nothing. Nothing from the Greco-Roman world that compares to the New Testament in terms of the date of its copies or the number of its copies. So, I'm concluding my first point now. I told you this would be the longest one. Has the Bible been translated and retranslated so many times that we don't know what it originally said? Here's one last way to think about this. In 1611, the King James Bible came out it was essentially based on nine Greek manuscripts. The earliest one was from the 11th century and they used that one the least. So just 500 years, 600 years earlier than when the the King James came out was the oldest manuscript. Now in 2022, we have over 5,000 manuscripts and our earliest go back to the second century. And we still have those nine manuscripts that the King James translators had. We haven't lost them, we we continue to have manuscripts, we continue to find more. So as time goes on, we're not getting farther and farther away from the original, we're actually getting closer and closer to the original text. Question two, what kinds of textual variations are there? I told you this first question would take most of the time. So this one we can go through fairly quickly. What kind of variations do we have? Over 99% make virtually no difference at all, over 99 percent. For example, there's differences in spelling. You guys here, are you from Oklahoma? You didn't laugh at all on that one, I just, I don't know what's going on. This is how it's supposed to be spelled for you you folks. So that's actually the number one most common difference we have among our manuscripts, three-fourths Of our differences in the manuscripts, our spelling differences. There was no standard dictionary back then. So I'm going to give you a question for Greek geeks. There may be two or three of you who know a little Greek. How many ways are there to say John loves Mary in Greek? Well, here's some items to consider. uh, uh, Greek is a highly inflected language, so you could put the words in any order you want, and it still means the same thing, John loves Mary. And the word John and Mary can come with the, like the John loves the Mary, or John loves the Mary, or not. I did my master's thesis on when the article, the definite article, did not occur in Greek, and I did my doctoral dissertation on when it did occur in Greek. These two works would cure the most hopeless insomniac. There's over 20,000 of these little buggers in the New Testament, and we still are not sure why it is used with proper names. It has not affected any doctrine of any sort anywhere ever. And yet, there it is. And then you've got difference in spelling. You can spell John two different ways. You can spell Mary several different ways. So, take out your pen and paper. Here's the ways in which you can spell John loves Mary in Greek. And this will show up on the quiz. I had to put it in Greek, of course, because I—that's what I, it, it says John loves Mary in English every time. I could put that, but... Every single time we translate this, John loves Mary, eight ways, Uh, uh, six, uh, I'm sorry, there's more than eight ways. There's uh, 96 ways you can say John loves Mary in Greek without changing the meaning at all. Now, Greek also uses conjunctions that are often not translated. And if you put those in, now we've got a whole lot more. These are all different, by the way. 384 ways that you can say John loves Mary. I hope you appreciate what I just produced very quickly. It took me eight hours of work to do this. (laughs) Every single one of them is different. And when I got done, I said, oh, I missed this one, I missed that. Oh, I'm done, I'm gonna call it quits. So these are not all the ways you can say John loves Mary in Greek. There's other legitimate word orders that swell the numbers to over 500, and you can have a certain construction that doubles all this to over 1,000 ways you could say John loves Mary using the same word loves every single time. You put in a different word for verb for loves and you could swell the numbers to over 2,000. Now what's the point of this little trivia exercise? Let's juxtapose it against what Bart Ehrman has said. We could go on nearly forever talking about specific places in which the texts of the New Testament came to be changed either accidentally or intentionally. The examples are not just in the hundreds, but in the thousands. They're actually in the hundreds of thousands. So what? If we can say John loves Mary over a thousand times in Greek without changing the meaning, the number of textual variants for the New Testament is meaningless. We literally could have tens of millions of variants among the manuscripts without changing the wording or the meaning of the original New Testament at all. That's pretty profound. So one and a half million, that that really shouldn't disturb us at all. What counts is the nature of these variants. Less than, actually it's less than one-tenth of one percent of all the textual variants are both meaningful and viable. And by viable I mean they could have, um, uh, they have some possibility of going back to the original wording. This picture is not to scale. It's a little bit higher than, that red dot is a little bit bigger than one-tenth of one percent. But that's how many variants are the ones that scholars are actually discussing, the ones that are meaningful and viable. They are not in the thousands, as Bart Ehrman suggests. They are far less than that. So I'm going to give you two illustrations just because our time is short. Of meaningful and viable variants. In Mark chapter 9 verse 29, Jesus told His disciples, this kind of demon can only be cast out by prayer or by prayer and fasting. Notice I put and fasting in brackets. This is the only place in the entire New Testament where it is suggested that fasting, if this variant is authentic, is something that should be practiced by Christians for some aspect of their lives, namely exorcisms. Now I've been involved in a couple of exorcisms and I'm not sure which is the original, prayer and fasting or just prayer, but I hedged my bets. I prayed and I fasted just just to cover the basis here. I don't know of any other passage though that deals with orthopraxy, that is, what are the variants we have that change how we should live in any situation? I know of none. So this is a major problem that affects the meaning, and and it has to do with viability, but which is original, I don't know. Here's one we should all be fairly familiar with, Revelation 13, 18. Let the one who has insight calculate the beast number, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Everybody in our society knows that 666 is the Antichrist. Well, is it really? In 1843, there was a scholar by the name of Constantine Tischendorf who worked in Paris at the Bibliothèque Nationale to look at a manuscript that had been completely scraped clean by a scribe hundreds of years after it was written, and then that scribe wrote on it diagonally. It was next to impossible to read what was under the text. Tischendorf spent two years looking at 150 leaves, or 300 pages, of this manuscript deciphering that undertext. And when he came to Revelation 13, 18, it said, the number of the beast is six one six. Well, that manuscript has turned out to be one of the two most important manuscripts for the book of Revelation. It's dated right around AD 400, very, very significant manuscript. I had a chance to look at that actual manuscript at the Bibliothèque Nationale, and I confirmed, yes, at Revelation 13, 18, it says 616. Well, that was the only manuscript we knew of until 1998, when a papyrus was published that came out of Oxford University's massive collection of a million papyri, and they published this manuscript that covers nine different chapters in Revelation, it's the oldest papyrus text we have, the oldest manuscript of Revelation 13, and it also says the number of the beast is 616. Now I've wrestled with this, frankly, probably too much. I wake up on Tuesday, and, I say, and the first thing I say is, ah, the number of the beast, that's 616. I know that's a little weird to start your day thinking about those things. Thursdays I might say, ah, no, I think it's 666. I go back and forth, I'm not sure. Most scholars today would still say 666 is the number of the beast, and 616, that's that's the neighbor of the beast. He lives a few doors down, you know. But I don't know of a single Christian institute, Bible college, seminary, church, or denomination that puts in its doctrinal statement, we believe in the deity of Christ, we believe in the virgin birth of Christ, we believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ, and we believe the number of the beast is 666. It may be important, but it's not that important, and that's the kind of variance that we're wrestling with. So question three, what theological beliefs depend on textually suspect passages? Once again, I want to quote from Dan Brown where he has Sir Lee Teabing declare, until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless, a mortal. He was talking about A.D. 325 when Emperor Constantine inaugurated the Council of Nicaea that was discussing the deity of Christ, but it's a very flawed view to say that the Council of Nicaea invented the deity of Christ, which is what Dan Brown is claiming. It's also what that popular British Muslim apologist was claiming. Was Jesus viewed as God before AD 325? That council, what it did was it defined what they meant by the deity of Christ, but they already believed in the deity of Christ. They just needed to hammer out exactly what they meant by it. So I mentioned earlier an ounce of evidence is worth a pound of presumption. Here's more than an ounce of evidence. Here's a manuscript, papyrus number 66, that's dated around A.D. 200. Some date it as early as 150, maybe a little later than 200. But whatever it is, it's a lot older than the Council of Nicaea. This is the first chapter of John. I want you to read along with me at John 1.1, if you would. And it says, can you see that? You You can read that, right? It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Have you ever heard that before in your Bible? Is that what your Bible says? Of course it's what your Bible says, because Constantine did not invent the deity of Christ. We have many manuscripts. We have church fathers. We have versions that go before that, all of whom are affirming the deity of Christ, every single manuscript of John's Gospel, no matter the date or the language, says the same thing in this verse. Jesus is unequivocally called God. Well, what about Christ's deity? His virgin birth, his sinlessness, his death on a cross, his bodily resurrection, his second coming. There are some passages that may not affirm this, but there are none of them that deny this. There are no variants no variants that put any essential belief in jeopardy. So that brings us to question four, and I'll conclude with this. Has the essence of the Christian faith been corrupted by the scribes? Eighty years ago Sir Frederick Kenyon, who was a paleographer extraordinaire, he, he looked at ancient manuscripts, that's what he spent his life working on, and he became the principal librarian at the British Museum. Here's what he wrote. The general result of all these discoveries and all this study is to strengthen the proof of the authenticity of the Scriptures and our conviction that we have in our hands in substantial integrity, the veritable Word of God. I think that's an excellent statement and it's something I would wholeheartedly agree with. We have in our hands, you have in your hands, in substantial integrity the veritable Word of God. You have it in all general respects and in almost all particulars as well." Well, That was 80 years ago, written by a Christian scholar. Let's pull in Bart Ehrman. He's on the witness stand now. He's argued against this whole point. They published a paperback version of his misquoting Jesus after about six months to keep the sales going up, and they added an appendix where the editors asked him a question. And on page 252 of the paper, you could go down to half-price books and pick this this up for yourself. They ask this question, this question, why do you believe these core tenets of Christian orthodoxy to be in jeopardy based on the scribal errors you discovered in the biblical manuscripts? You notice what they're asking is, why do you believe that orthodoxy is jeopardized? They don't ask, do you believe? This is how they read what he wrote. Why do you believe? When they point blank ask that question even after editing his book and reading it several times, here's what Ehrman's response was. Again, page two fifty-two. Essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. What? He has affected hundreds of thousands of kids who've gone off to college and abandoned the faith because they read his book in the way he wanted it to be read, but when he was point-blank asked what he meant, he could not deny this fact. Essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variance in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. Now I want to offer you an unnatural segue. And I'm going to conclude, really conclude, with this. A polar bear attacks a man in Canada, and bystanders do nothing. The media didn't even report this event. It must be a liberal media. Not, not sure why, but I thought I'd throw that in. OK, I want you all to close your eyes. This is before lunch. You haven't eaten for a while, so it's not going to upset you too much. I'm going to show you some pictures of this polar bear attacking this man in Canada. Get in your mind a vision of what this is. Okay, open your eyes. This is the polar bear attacking the man in Canada. When you hear people attack scripture and say, How can you possibly tell what goes back to the original? Think of this polar bear as attacking this man. Did he hurt the man? No. He might have pulled out a couple threads of the guy's 501 blues, but that's it. This is that polar bear. He's a baby. He does nothing. He does not jeopardize in any sense the essential beliefs of the Christian faith. What I want you to conclude with is this, trust your Bible and read it, because in there you'll find the words of life. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for every translation of the Bible that exalts Jesus Christ. And we ask that you'll burden our hearts to read the Scriptures, to know you well, and to know how we can defend our faith with those who are skeptical. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.